Let's pray. Heavenly, Va- Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us voices that cre- create such beautiful music, talents that you gave us. We give you all the glory. We thank you for giving us your word, which speaks truth to us. And we thank you for giving us your word, your son, Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And through him, we have hope. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in us as he moved in the days of creation, stirring the waters of our hearts that he might bring order the chaos of our lives, open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to, to, seek, to see Christ, to hear the word and so live. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you have, not- you have noticed that post-Easter, uh, we have resumed our walk through the book of James. We've reached the home stretch and will be done before the end of May. This week, we, we pick up at the beginning of chapter five, though, where James is again warning about the ability of wealth to pull us away from daily reliance upon God and into the sin of of selfishness that shows no regard for others. And this is a topic that James touched upon briefly earlier in his letter, but he's revisiting it with, with greater intensity and length here towards the end of his letter. And he begins in verse one with, come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. James has again set his sights on the rich, particularly the Greco-Roman landowners who were famous for their exploitation of resources, both land and people, for the sake of their own advancement and comfort. And with this notoriously exploitative people, James rearticulates the same approach that he used in his warning about wealth in chapter one. James is advocating for those with much to look to the end of life, to keep their certain death as foremost in their minds. An end is coming, which must prompt a reevaluation of the priorities and purposes of the present. Now, Pauline and I were with our kids at the gathering place in Tulsa. For those of you who don't know, the gathering place is, you can think of it as a 100-acre playground right? in the middle of Tulsa. It's heaven for children. Anyway, Pauline and I were there with our kids, and we overheard a conversation uh, between a mother and her daughter as their time to play for the day was running out. And the mother shouted to her daughter, we're leaving in 10 minutes. The death knoll had been sounded. And the little girl responded by shouting to all her little friends, we've only got 10 minutes, let's make it worth it. And off she ran, right, to do her most favorite things in the limited time she had remaining. And this interaction illustrates what James is trying to accomplish with his reminders to the rich that their time is limited. You cannot take with you all the stuff you've acquired in this world. 
James is, is prompting a reevaluation of behavior in light of an imminent end. But what James is encouraging in the time remaining is not further hoarding, right? He's not seeking a selfish response, but one which adopts the priorities of the eternal judge who will appear at the end of time in order to evaluate how we spent the resources we have been given from him, given by him during this first limited window of time we have on earth. He condemns any hoarding in verse 5 as incompatible with the end that awaits all of humanity. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure, James writes in verse 5. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And this day of slaughter imagery is it's an, another way of describing judgment. What James is saying, therefore, is not just that our, our time is limited, but that it will end in judgment. And each one of us will have a day in court before God, the giver of all good gifts, the creator of all people, and he'll call witnesses to testify against us. That's how the window of time we have on earth will end. For some, it will be a rewarding day, and for others, it will be a great day of shame and loss. There'll be weeping and wailing for the rich who spent themselves, often at the expense of others, trying to accumulate goods that provided comfort and significance in this world. The rich who who trusted in their own abilities and wealth, but not in God, will discover that they have made themselves strangers to the one who created them. And so James, his prescription, what he is calling for, is for the rich, in verse 1, to preemptively weep and wail now, in anticipation of the weeping and wailing that will involuntarily be brought upon them on the day of judgment. He's instructing them to give up their goods voluntarily before they're stripped from them. He's inviting them to adopt the way of our Lord Jesus Christ before the judgment comes. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul describes the pattern that Jesus laid out for us. He writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus did not cling to the wealth, the comfort that he enjoyed as the eternal son of God. But instead he became a human being and he experienced the misery and the frustration and the weariness that's common to all who live in this broken world. He was born to poor parents and he relied upon a group of women to support him financially in his ministry. Wherever he went, he crashed on people's sofas and he ate their food. He lived a humble life. And yet he did this out of love for humanity. For by his poverty, many were made rich. He descended to humanity and into death so that he might raise humanity up in his resurrection and ascension. Jesus is the vehicle of our salvation, gladly carrying on his back all those who come to him in faith through death and into new life. And he can do this because he met death as a human being and he was victorious in the fights. And all who entrust their lives to him in faith will therefore likewise be victorious. Despite that his story ended in victory, though, the pattern he laid out for us with his life took the shape of a V, as in victory. And it's those who empty themselves for the sake of others who will be filled 
and fulfilled. It's those who go down who will rise. Therefore, James is calling the rich to voluntarily give up what they have now and offer it to the poor before it's taken from them. He is calling them to weep and wail now so that they might rejoice later when in the judgment Jesus will lift up the lowly, make the poor rich through his pardon and love. But what does this have to do with us? James is writing to to wealthy Greco-Roman landowners, which we are not. How then would, how then should James's warning to the rich impact us? It's true, James was most likely writing to a particular population of people in the ancient world. However, money has maintained its manipulative qualities with time. It's an idol that humanity has adored for millennia, one which America in particular has blindly enshrined in the narrative we pass on from generation to generation. And the American dream and the gospel diverge in significant ways, but it's the American dream that often sets our expectations, our understandings of a good life. A good life in America is measured in possessions, in vacations, in food and clothing and cars and houses and the list goes on. Simply growing up in this country means there is a desire in me and in you for more. And this is a desire common to all of humanity as evidenced by the fact that Adam and Eve were dissatisfied with being denied just one tree. But in America, this unhealthy desire is exaggerated, it's encouraged. One scholar writes, one of the the sins for which God condemns these people is their selfish accumulation of money and things. In the Western world, where amassing material wealth is not only condoned, but admired, we Christians need to come to grips with this point in James and ask ourselves seriously, when do we have too much? When do we have too much? It's a question we don't always ask because we have an easy, ready-made answer. Storage units. With storage units, there's always room for more. We never have too much. John Mark Comer in his book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, writes, we like Egypt have, um, have to build our own supply cities. We call them storage units. They are a $38 billion industry in the U.S. alone, taking up 2.3 billion square feet, enough for every single American to have over seven square feet to themselves, meaning we could practically house our entire nation in our storage units. And my point in quoting Comer is that you don't have to be rich in America, right? To fall victim to the kind of hoarding that James attributes to the Greco-Roman landowners in chapter five of his letter. Simply living in America means that you daily live with the temptation of excess because that's the standard set before you, right? By your neighbors and your family, through advertising that tries to get you to buy what you don't actually need. It's the water we swim in. And so we have, every one of us, me included, drunk the Kool-Aid. You may even consider yourself poor in comparison to others. But again, our perception of poverty is skewed by our cultural expectations and cultural realities. In comparison to the rest of the world to which we're very much connected, we're far from poor. Comer points out, if you make $25,000 a year or more, 
you're in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And if you make $34,000 a year or more, you're in the top 1%, right? With numbers like that, if James is targeting anybody in the modern world as rich, we would certainly be in his sights. The bottom 70% of the world's population possesses just less than 3% of the world's wealth. That is a little bit of money spread to a lot of people. And yet Comer points out that these are the people who make our socks and shoes, our smartphones, and our Star Wars lunchboxes, many of them working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, in the sweltering heat of a factory in Vietnam or the cold of a cotton field in Uzbekistan just to survive, many against their will. I understand this, this criticism feels unfair because it seems unvo- unavoidable, right? And, and the problems are too institutional and large for us to, to have any ability to affect change. What do we do? I know that helpless feeling that gives birth to defensiveness and anger. My point in bringing this up is to say that James is writing to us in chapter five of his letter. Come now, he, he's, he calls, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. He's calling out like that mom, you've only got 10 minutes left. He's trying to get us to reconsider our priorities and those things we look to for comfort and hope in this world. James is encouraging us to adopt a lifestyle modeled after the letter V, after the life of Christ. And so he brings us into the courtroom prematurely and he assembles witnesses against us, inanimate objects that he personifies in order to let them tell their stories. And the first such witness in James 5 is rust. In verse 3, he says that the rust on your possessions will testify against you in the day of judgment. It's like he's going through our garages, our our closets, our storage units. He's pulling out things we'd forgotten we even owned, and he's letting the rusted out tools testify to our excess. He's letting the dozens of shoes we own gathering dust in our closets condemn us. The dresses and shirts that have been eaten by moths. Right, all these things climb into the witness stand in, in James 5, and together they ask, you really need us? Would not the money you spent on us have been better spent elsewhere? Look at me. I'm all rusty, says the wrench. I got holes in me, says the skirt with the tag still attached. Weep and wail, James says. Get rid of it now before it's taken from you. Change your habits now before the neglected stuff in your homes has the opportunity to testify against you. Press back with all your might against the narrative that says you need more. Be content with what you truly need, which is actually very little. And give intentionally to people who have less than you. Jump on the downward slope of the V. and Christ will raise you up. He'll make you rich with his pardon and love. And James then calls another witness in verse 4. He writes, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. Again, James personifies an inanimate object, this time wages, pay. And together the wages cry out saying, we're not enough. We cannot provide for the people who serve you by sewing your clothes or making your toys or harvesting your food. Together the wages testify to the ways we participate in the enslavement of a people who are far removed from our sight, living in Southeast Asia or all throughout Africa. Weep and wail, James says. 
Consider more closely what you buy, and if paying a fair wage means buying less and paying more, then save your pennies and learn to live without. It's a practice that will help you in pushing back against the American dream and instead adopt the way of the gospel. You're called to mimic the lifestyles not of the rich and the famous, but of the poor and obscure. If anything, the practice of deprivation will develop in you more compassion for the people who truly have nothing. The experience of unfulfilled desire in you will better attune your ears to their cries for mercy and for justice. You'll be able to not only hear, but to receive their testimony against you. Your weeping and wailing will become genuine, your penitence sincere. As a consumer, you have the ability to communicate, right? To manufacturers and designers, a changing appetite for goods unjustly produced. Through your self-denial and discipline, God will answer the cries for justice that arise from a weary and exploited people. He'll make himself known to them. Finally, though, James calls a third witness. We've heard from rust. We've heard from wages. In verse 6, though, the, the righteous one takes the stand. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Whoever this righteous one is, he takes the stand and he says nothing. He makes no accusations, offers no objections. He's silent. Scholars are uncertain as to who James is identifying as this righteous one. Many say it's the the same people who have been exploited, whose wages have been withheld. They propose this because of the silence of this righteous one when he takes the stand. Scholars point out that the exploited worker offers no resistance because they have no power. What would resistance accomplish apart from further crushing their hopes? The scholars who propose this may very well be right. This may be who James calls the righteous one in verse 6. However, when I read about the condemnation and murder of a righteous one who puts up no resistance, I can't help but think of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah describes the death of Jesus in the Old Testament passage read for you earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And this prophecy found its fulfillment in Jesus as he stood in front of Pilate and offered no defense of himself. Mark's gospel states that the chief priests were staying there accusing him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer? See how many charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no further reply. And Mark says Pilate was amazed. Jesus was literally in the witness stand in Pilate's court And he made no accusations. He offered no objections. He was silent. And the reason he was silent was for you. Not because he had no defense. Quite the contrary, he was an innocent man. Accused by a people who couldn't even agree on why they wanted him crucified. He was silent because he was there to die in your place and in my place. If he would have spoken up, it could have been only to condemn us. And so he remained silent. The evidence against us is clear. We have sinned. And what we have done, and what we have left undone, in thought, in word, 
And indeed, we have hoarded, we've benefited from systemic injustice that withholds proper pay from people on the other side of the world. In many, many ways, we are guilty. And yet, he sits in the witness stand. He makes no accusation against us. Instead, he takes the witness stand and he silently offers himself as a payment for our guilt. And the prophet Isaiah makes it explicitly clear that this is what Jesus was doing with his silence. In verses five and six, Isaiah writes, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his bruises, we are healed. Jesus offered himself in our place so that by his death, we might be pardoned and forgiven. In Jesus, therefore, we live in this life, sinful people. But we live without fear of condemnation because of Christ. And yet by his love, he has purchased us so that we are no longer free to live in our sin to give ourselves to it. The lives we live are no longer our own. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that Jesus died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. We are bound by his love and grace to weep and wail over our persistent and dissonant sin. We're bound by his blood to repent for our preference of the American dream with all its expectations and standards. In the death of Jesus, we see what our behavior cost, but in his death, we also learn that our judgment day has already come. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was crushed under the weight of him. And so we are free. Gratitude and hope now motivate our penitence, our weeping and our wailing. For as we follow Jesus downward into the grave, we can have every expectation that he will raise us up. And in the end, crown us with riches and love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.